We are in Malachi. I'll begin at chapter 2, verse 17. Here, Malachi condemns the people for distorting good and evil. Actions they call good are evil according to God. Behaviors they accept would be condemned by God. Now, it's often easy for us to identify the failure of others. Jesus himself warns that we need to deal first with our own sin, the plank, the log in our own eye, before we would deal with the speck in the eye of another. And so as we listen to a word of judgment, the condemnation that God pronounces on his people, let's listen not merely to see their sin, but let's ask the Holy Spirit to reveal our sins so that we can repent, that we can turn from sin. This morning, we're reading Malachi's fourth prophecy, which again comes in a question and answer format. It begins in the final verse of chapter 17. I mean, it's, it's actually no surprise that, that you would begin a new chapter with, with verse 1 of chapter 3. See, I send my messenger. I mean, that's a message that, that it becomes so important later in the Bible that it makes sense that a medieval scholar would say, hey, if I'm going to put a division, let's start here. The problem is that's not where Malachi's divisions were. So we're going to begin reading at, at chapter 2, verse 17. This is the book of Malachi. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me, Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand up when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in former years. So I will come near to judge you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Father in heaven, I ask that as we, having heard your word, now listen to the proclamation of your truth, that our hearts would be changed, that you would do that work in my own heart, that as your word is announced, that we would be quick to acknowledge our own sin, that we would run for rescue into your arms, that we would be among those who are able to stand your judgment, not in our own strength, but because of the grace of our Savior. So, Lord, for those that come weighed down by the sorrows and burdens of life, give them joy and hope in your word. For those that have doubts and questions, that wonder where you could possibly be, Lord, reveal yourself today by the power of your Spirit through the word of Jesus, our Savior. We come praying in his name. Amen. August isn't too early for Christmas music, right? All right, I know some of you are saying, yeah, it's way too early. 
Now, Malachi tells us that the messenger comes to prepare the way of the Lord. Words which the New Testament reminds us come in the Christmas story. And so I cranked up the volume in my office this week and listened to some versions of the, the, the hymn, Joy to the World, that great Isaac Watts hymn that, that we sing at Christmas time. It's a hymn that's actually based on Psalm 98. What, what Watts did is he, he looked at the promises of, of Psalm 98, where the, the psalmist says, sing to the Lord a new song. Why? Because the Lord has made his salvation known. He's revealed his righteousness to the nations. And so we sing those words, joy to the world, the Lord is come. We announce with hope the arrival of King Jesus. And yet, Psalm 98 ends with a warning. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the world. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. The song can only be filled with joy if you aren't afraid of God's judgment. And that hymn rightly announces the hope that we have in the arrival of the infant Savior. But it also anticipates his return in judgment, which means even if you're going to confine Christmas hymns to the Christmas season, you can sing joy to the world all year long. For those still trapped in sin, weighed down by the weight of their own guilt, the announcement, the Lord is come, is not filled with joy. Instead, the arrival, the arrival of the judge is the announcement of your condemnation. Wrath for the world, the Lord is come. Death to the world, the Lord is come. Malachi is making the same announcement. The Lord is come. He is here. But who can endure the day of his coming? You and I hear those words with joy. If you've put your trust in Jesus, and they are words filled with joy, but they should also be words of warning. A warning to those who are lost in sin. A warning to all of us who are willing to justify our own sins. Malachi makes the announcement. Look back at chapter 3, verse 1. God says, see, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come. God will come to his temple, God himself here on earth. The people had cried out for justice, and God shows up. I mean, this is good news for the oppressed, for those who need a rescuer, but this brings judgment on the guilty. When we turn in Malachi, we, we see the way in which the, the prophecies come to us in questions and answers. The Lord gives a statement, and then the people respond. Now, it's not even probably a question that they actually asked. Malachi puts the words in their mouths to move the conversation forward. He's exposing their hearts. And so in chapter 2, verse 17 of Malachi, his fourth disputation, this, this fourth uh, series of questions and answers comes with the statement, you have wearied the Lord with your words. 
It's, it's as if you've weighed down the Lord with your babbling, with your foolishness, with your nonsense. Instead of your relationship with God being filled with joy, God comes to you as one who has been wearied. And so the people ask in verse 17, how have we wearied him? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. See, they are twisting uh, their actions. They're looking at things that God's word would clearly say, that is sin, that is evil, and they're saying, I think God would like this. I mean, this would be acceptable to God. This would please God. They've, they've distorted the truth. And so then they ask the question, where is the God of justice? They wonder if God is still involved. I mean, the messianic age that was promised in their return from exile has not arrived. The temple has been rebuilt, but where is the Messiah? And listen carefully. It's, it's not the question, where is the God of justice that is in itself wrong? It's the attitude with which it's asked. Because there are many places in Scripture that will ask that kind of question without judgment being thrown down upon the questioner. The prophet Habakkuk asks, how long, O Lord? Where are you? The psalmist asks that question. But it's asked from someone who actually expects God to answer. Somebody who is crying out to God because he really is the rescuer. The reason that you would ask, where is God, is because you think God must be close by and respond. But that's not the way the question is being asked here. They've flipped good and evil. They've distorted the truth of God's word. They've been willing to ignore him, and they think he is silent. And so the question is, where is the God of justice? Nowhere. He's nowhere to be found. He's, he's incompetent. He's unable to respond. It's a claim that, that God is either unjust or negligent, that he cannot respond. And so it's appropriate to ask God for help, but to blame God becomes sin. See, the righteous can cry out to God, expecting God to help. The one who puts his or her trust in God can ask that question in honesty, where? Where is the God of justice? It's the hypocrite who's in danger, the one who is practicing evil as if this would be acceptable to God, or the one practicing injustice as if, well, I know it's wrong, but what's God going to do about it anyway? He hasn't been around at all. So either they're justifying their actions by calling that which God's Word says is evil and saying, no, no, it's good, or they don't even care. Really, what does it matter what God says? He hasn't been around here in a while anyway. I think my lease agreement with him is probably void because he hasn't come back to check on me at all. I can do whatever I want at this point. And yet God, at the end of, of what we read, look down at verse 5 of Malachi 3. In verse 5 we read God, God himself saying, So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify. I mean, this is a, a problem because God is both the righteous and perfect judge and the only witness who needs to be called. He will testify against your sinfulness and mine. Because it's God's standards that matter, not our own definitions. See, by our own definitions, we probably think we're fine. Because we, we normally think of hypocrisy as somebody who, who points to God's standards 
and expects others to live up to it, but then fails. And that's true of all of us at some level. We say, this is what I should do. God's word says it, and then we fail. Now, the hypocrite is the one who who pretends to be righteous in the face of God's judgment. But there's another way to be hypocritical. It's saying, well, no, no, I'm not going to point to this standard. I'm going to demand justice, but then I'm going to twist everyone's definition of justice to my own. I'm going to make all of you act exactly as I would want you to act. It's changing the standard. So you can be a hypocrite according to God's standard by pretending like you can make it, or you can even become a hypocrite by your own standards, by distorting the truth and saying, well, I know what God says, but I think my way will probably work better. And so God comes to condemn the sorcerers, those who look to the spiritual realm, those who who look to the dead, those who look to the, the future as if that will give them power in the present. And God testifies against them. He testifies against adulterers, those who have sinned sexually. Now, now you and I, by our own standards, we think, well, I mean, so far, so far, so good. Like, I haven't prayed to the dead, like, you know, all week. So sorcery, I think I'm good. And adultery, I mean, I haven't, like, I haven't stepped out on my wife. I mean, I think I'm fine by my own standards. So because we can so narrowly define the sin to make ourselves free of guilt, you can think, well, I didn't touch, I just looked. You can think, well, what does it hurt anyone? They're just, they're just images on my phone. See, we can redefine sin so that we are free of condemnation. Or we can change the standards of God altogether. I mean, after all, love is love. God, of all people, should know that. And so if I love someone, it must be okay. We can take God's standard and say, no, I'm going to replace it with my own, which tragically is often not really your own. It's the standard that your friends and neighbors and classmates put in front of you. When it comes to the sins that the Bible describes of homosexuality, the sins of identifying yourself by, 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 a, by a gender that that doesn't match who you you were made to be. See, we're twisting God's truth to our own desires. Again, when God says he will testify against the perjurers, we think we're fine. When I put my hand on the Bible and raise my hand, I tell the truth. Well, in those limited circumstances, I do. I mean, when you ask me, have you gotten that project done that I asked you about, and, well, I haven't gotten to it because I haven't thought of it once since that conversation, well, I I mean, I don't lie to you. I just tell you, oh, yeah, I'm working on it. I just twist the truth so that you don't think less of me. Or when I'm online and I see what somebody else has said, well, I I mean, I don't need to read more of the story. The headline is enough for me. I can now jump to conclusions. I can see what somebody else has done and I can post about it because I don't have to go talk to them I don't have to actually find out the truth. I just know, based on what they've previously said or previously posted, what must be true in this case, and so I can say whatever I want. When God comes to, against, to, the, to testify against those who defraud laborers of their wages, I think, I'm good. I don't have any laborers. 
I mean, I'd love some laborers, I mean, you know, to command to do what I wanted, but, but then I'm short with my staff and wonder, you know, have they really done enough? I mean, are they, I mean, are, do they care as much as I care? When I look at those impoverished and think, well, I mean, you get what you deserve, right? I mean, if they had worked as hard as I worked, we wouldn't have this problem, would we? I'm glad to benefit from systems that protect me while having little concern for laws and regulations that protect the vulnerable. And yet God is one who loves the vulnerable. He will stand in defense of widows and the fatherless, even if no one else will. Even if the system grinds them up, God sees their need. God even cares for the alien, the sojourner, the one who has traveled from a far country to live amongst God's people. And remember, God cares for them even when in the last Sunday sermon, we got the warning, but you can't marry an unbeliever. It doesn't mean God doesn't care about the unbeliever. You have a responsibility to love and protect those that are vulnerable. God has compassion on all of us. He's calling sinners to repentance. And so when God comes as judge, he gives us the promise of his messenger. See, and that's why the medieval scholars who, who threw the big numbers down in your Bible, the little numbers didn't even come to later than that. I mean, imagine showing up at church and they say, turn to Malachi and find the verse that says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. I mean, this would take forever. I mean, I love the numbers are so much easier to find. But in chapter 3, verse 1, God gives us the promise of his messenger. Look at what he says. When the people ask, where is the God of justice? He says, see, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. God is coming. Now, this is actually the language of, of the book of Exodus. You keep a, a finger in, in Malachi, but you can flip to Exodus 23 where the people, having been rescued by God from their slavery, are taken to Mount Sinai, where God gives them the, the law. He tells them, I'm the God who rescued you. Now live in obedience before me. And as God sends his people on, on their way into the promised land, look at Exodus 23, verse 20. Right, the people are preparing to go into the promised land. Exodus 23, 20, God says, See, I am sending an angel... I'm sending a messenger. It's the same word. An angel is a messenger. I'm sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. God promises to protect his people, to send an angelic warrior, a messenger from heaven to prepare the way for his people. The people enter the promised land. I mean, now it takes wanderings. There's sin in the promised land. They've been exiled. They've been brought back. And now God echoes the language of those words in Exodus, saying, I will send my angel, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way, not just for you, not just for you to come into the promised land. God will, this, this angel will now prepare the way for God himself to come. And so when the New Testament begins, now, our New Testament begins with Matthew, but it's likely that the first gospel the Christians heard was the gospel of Mark. We begin with the words of Malachi. 
So we're, we're done in Exodus. You can pull your finger out from there. But now flip to the Gospel of Mark. So if you go back to Malachi, you just have to get out, now get past Matthew into Mark. Mark chapter 1, where we have the heading, the description of what's coming. This is the beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So this is the beginning of the story, the announcement of joy-filled news about Jesus, who is the Messiah, the Christ. He is God's own son. Now, Mark tells us that it's written in Isaiah the prophet, but the quote from Isaiah doesn't actually begin until verse 3 of Mark chapter 1. First, he quotes from Malachi. Now, again, it's not that Mark didn't understand this. It's, it's like when you, when you pick up a book with co-authors, but one of them is a name you've heard before, and the other is, I don't know, some, somebody you've never heard. The, the main author gets their name really big. Well, Isaiah's a major prophet. Again, not that he's more important than Malachi. It's just that he talked about the arrival of the messenger over and over and over again. He talked about the arrival of, of God himself, and so, so Malachi's little message of one verse gets subsumed by by Isaiah's giant message. And so it's, it's one of those instances where the minor prophets don't get their due. He's subsumed by Isaiah. Because the quote in Mark chapter 1, verse 2, is actually from Malachi. It's only when you get to verse 3 that we have the full context that comes from Isaiah. And so what is, what is the gospel, the good news about Jesus the Messiah, who is God's own son? Well, Mark 1 verse 2 tells us it is written in Isaiah the prophet, first quoting from Malachi, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. God sends his messenger Not an angelic warrior like he did in Exodus, but a man, a prophet. John, the baptizer, the one who comes baptizing God's people. He was sent to prepare the way for Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. Now Malachi, the prophet, is followed by a blank page in my Bible. And that blank page represents 400 years of silence. And yet the very last thing that the people had heard was, God is coming. See, I will send a messenger who will prepare the way for you. It's the pause in the the movie that, that sort of sucks you in. Now, obviously, if the pause lasts too long in the movie, you get up and walk out because you think it's over. And so when we finally get to Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, it's the music that that swells, that, that pregnant pause. It was filled not with, not with an absence of God's presence, but the very promise of God that he was sending his messenger. And so the arrival of John the Baptist is the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before you. But then who will come? See, we weren't waiting for John. Who are we waiting for? The Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And that's what God says will happen. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. See, Malachi tells us the messenger will come. 
John arrives on the scene saying the Messiah is coming. John tells us when he sees Jesus, the Messiah, the King, the Rescuer is here. Because when the Rescuer comes, you and I are left still to answer that question of Malachi 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? Because before the judgment of God, you and I would be shown guilty. But how does he come? Well, Malachi says he, he will be like a refiner's fire. The process of, of heating up ore, because the metals melt at different temperatures, and so, so at just the right temperature, you can pour off the impurities. You can separate the, the valuable metal, the gold, the silver, from the impurities. Or like the launderer's soap, dipping the clothing in lye to separate the dirt from the fabric. Now remember, they, they didn't have a gentle setting on their wash cycles. So like the refiner's fire, it's a violent image because you would take that, that fabric and then beat it to separate the dirt from the fabric. The, the one who comes in judgment comes with the, the refiner's fire, the launderer's soap, in order to purify his people. But these are dangerous images. Can you endure? Can you stand up? Because when John, the messenger, arrived, he came with the the messianic promise that God himself is coming. The rescuer we need is the Lord himself. Otherwise, you and I would face condemnation before the judge. The judge who deals with our sin, we'd be left to sing, wrath for the world, the Lord is come. And yet when the Lord comes, he comes as the Messiah, the rescuer, the one who puts himself in the refiner's flame, the one who is beaten and bruised, who has everything taken from him, the one dragged out of the city so that, so that the city itself wouldn't be defiled by his death and is crucified on the cross. Jesus, the Messiah, takes your guilt upon himself. The judge willing to be judged for your sin. And so put your trust in him. Because either the refiner's fire is an image of of hope for you, that God has purified you through the death of Jesus, or it's an image of destruction that you are cast off with that which is which is pulled out and removed. But if you've put your trust in Jesus, then you are cleansed, refined by his fire, cleansed with his soap, set free to follow him in obedience. And so when you're, when you're confronted with your own hypocrisy, either the fact that, that you have tried to justify yourself according to God's standards, or you've tried to slip in your own standards instead of God's, when confronted with your hypocrisy, either you're left to double down on your hypocrisy and just shout it all the louder, no, 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 don't listen to God. My ways are better than his. Or when confronted with your hypocrisy, you confess it. See, the easiest way to deal with the charge that you're a hypocrite is to say, of course. But why don't we get more specific? Could you tell me exactly how? because my heart is so distorted that there are probably multiple ways I've been hypocritical this week. Could you show me where I failed to live up to God's standards? Because of course I know that I have. 
That's why I needed a rescuer, a king who would die in my place. Because I can't match his standards. I don't even want to match his standards most of the time. A lot of time I hate his standards. See, hypocrisy either forces you to keep justifying your own actions or to admit you can't justify yourself and to throw yourself upon Jesus who is the rescuer. And that means when you are confronted with your sins, sins which sound old-fashioned, sorcery, adultery, perjury, oppression, you would say, where have I sinned? That you'd be willing to confess. That when refined by, your, by, by Jesus himself, by throwing yourself upon him, when then in hope, you're given the opportunity for new obedience, gospel obedience. You say, well, what matters most to you, Lord? Where can I serve? Where have I overlooked? You care about the widow and the fatherless. You care about the laborers who are oppressed. You care about the aliens deprived of justice. God, you care about truth and purity and honesty. See, Jesus the Savior then makes true worship possible. When refined, now the people can come to God. Verse 3 says that, that after God refines us, then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings and righteousness. The offerings in Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord. Now the good news is you and I don't bring blood offerings, sacrificial offerings anymore. Because Jesus died once for all, his death providing full atonement. The sacrifice you and I bring is our very selves, our lives, our obedience. We throw ourselves upon God's love and mercy, and we say, because of what you have done, now let me live for you. And so when confronted with a half-truth, we'll admit full sin. When we've overlooked the vulnerable, we'll step in and say, how could I help? Because there is hope for the wicked who repent. When the people ask, where is the God of justice? I mean, that could be the final straw. He has proved himself patient. We've made it all the way to the end of the Old Testament, and God hasn't killed you yet. And yet, what does he do? I will send my messenger who will prepare the way for me. There is hope for the wicked who repent. Because when you ask that question, where is the God of justice? He died on a cross. He rose from the dead. He reigns as the king in glory. And that means there is hope for those of us who are weary and broken and burdened, who have been sinned against by others, who could actually in honesty and integrity ask that question. God, where are you? Where is the God of justice? He is on the throne. He sees your pain. He will respond. Where is the God of justice? He is Jesus Christ, our Lord, the Son of God. There is good news here for you today. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us to turn from sin to be honest with ourselves. Lord, that we would stop putting up, up walls of, of false 
security and assurance in our own goodness, and that when confronted with our sin, we would admit our failures. Father, we ask for those that have listened today that feel the burden of guilt. Lord, let them not shake off that burden without coming to Jesus the Savior. Lord, don't let us find find false ideas of forgiveness in ourselves. Let us find full and true forgiveness in Jesus alone. Lord, give us a hope and a comfort and a peace knowing that you are the God who loves us, who has rescued us from sin. So we thank you for your promise that you are the God who does not remain silent. You are the God who has been active in our lives. So we give you thanks for the arrival of our Savior, and we pray, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. We pray for his return when all that has gone wrong will be made right, when we will see justice in its fullness as far as the curse is found. And so, Lord, we rejoice today in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.